going to uh, pick up where we left off last week. If you recall, uh, we spent time talking about um, the concept uh, from uh, Jacques Derrida about difference, which we described as um, what we have uh, understood in our culture as um, identity politics or this idea of dividing up people into whatever group they belong to based on all of these various criteria. And, uh, and we discussed uh, from Scripture how uh, that works against God's idea of what He desires for, uh, for mankind, that we not see ourselves um, as identified by all of the different groups we can find ourselves in, but rather as a people and specifically as Christians, as God's people, not as God's black people or God's white people or God's Asian people or uh, women who happen to be this or that, but rather as the people of God, as one race, the human race, all in need of Christ, that we see um, our unity with um, the people of the world in that we are fallen, that we are broken, that we are in need of redemption. And so, um, that's, that's what we talked about last week. I hope um, that's helpful for you to start thinking about because if you spend any time, um, and some do more than others, uh, listening to the news or uh, what's going on in the world around us, uh, you hear this kind of talk come up all of the time. Um, these, these kinds of ideas are deeply embedded in how uh, things function within our culture. And uh, I believe that all of these ideas um, have sprung up from this postmodern um, uh, platform. So from there, we've talked a bit about uh, language and what is done with language and, and how postmodernism has sought to change the rules of language and how we work with it. Um, and part of language and part of things like this idea of identity and, and defining ourselves differently is the way that we think. The very, it gets to the very core of how we think about things. Now, as, as Westerners, uh, all of us, whether you realize it or not, you, if you grew up in the West, you were trained to think in a certain way predominantly. Now, that has changed a little bit, but if you put someone who grew up in the West next to someone who grew up in the East and you ask them a question, the way they go about answering that question is probably going to be very different. Um, just as an example, when I started uh, working in Nigeria, I read a book called African Friends and Money Matters. And that book talked about how, um, in general, people in Africa uh, think about relationships, friendships, and how they think about financial uh, dealings, and they, they deal with money and everything else. So one of the examples the book gave was, if you had a roommate in the West, um, you, uh, you would go to them maybe five or six days before the rent is due and say, hey, the rent is due, I need your, your half of the rent, so say it's $400, I need your, I need your money. Um, and so you get their money, and then when the rent's due, you pay the rent. Now, if at that point in time I came to you as a Westerner and I said, hey, the rent was due, I collected your money, but between when you gave it to me and when it was due, 
I, had, I needed gas for my car. I needed uh, to pay some school fees. I needed to do this and that. So I used that money. So I need to get $400 more to cover your part of the rent. What would you say to that person? Uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> sure you do. <laughs> right? Uh, it probably wouldn't be received with... Uh, with uh, a lot of fanfare that you, uh, that you did that, and uh, you probably would be laughed at, right? Um, well, in general, uh, the, the mind of the African hears that and says, well, um, that's unfortunate, but apparently you had a need, and so here's another $400. And, uh, and it's sort of just we shrug it off and move on, and that's what it is. Now, we don't, we don't think in those same kind of categories. And I thought that was a little bit out there. And so I asked my friends the same question in Africa. And they said, yeah, that's generally how we, how we work through those kinds of things. So um, that's one example of many in how we think differently about our relationships, about our finances, and all of these kinds of things. In the West, we think very linear, linearly. We, we are about steps and processes. And this happens, and then this happens, and if this doesn't happen, then this won't happen. These kinds of things. We have, we have these ways of working through problems. And in large part, this is the reason why um, the West has done so well and has been so prosperous, because we work in these ways. I do believe there's something of a linear thought process that is communicated uh, through Scripture. I think there's something biblical about it. It's even how we study the Bible in a very linear fashion in many ways, systematically, and then even dealing uh, with biblical theology is looking through the story and working through a process to come to a conclusion. I think God has communicated to us in a way that that can be done. Nevertheless, this idea of linear thinking, being that it is a, a Western hallmark, is something uh, that postmodernists, believe it or not, uh, decide, well, we can't, we can't go down that road any longer. Uh, linear thinking, maybe that's one of the problems we need to deconstruct. And so along those lines, uh, one philosopher he was doing a work called Challenging Postmodernism, and he wrote about a conversation he was having with a postmodernist philosopher, and he asked her, uh, he said this, when I had occasion to ask her whether or not it was a fact that giraffes are taller than ants, she replied that it was not a fact, but rather an article of religious faith in our culture. So what... What is motivating that kind of ridiculous response to such a question? It is that we cannot ever come to a place in the mind of the postmodernists that we would say anything is indeed a fact, right? This question is always on the table of absolutism. And remember when we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, words being made up of letters which are symbols that are stand-ins for actual realities. Well, this is that sort of thing playing out. Well, it's not true in the way that you're saying it's true. It's simply something that you believe to be true. Right? So now 
what have we reduced this to? This is no longer about absolutes. This is about belief, and your belief may be different from my belief, and therefore we cannot say that this is one and the same for you and for me. So for me, the giraffe is taller than the ant, but for you, you may have another way of thinking about that, and so it may not be true. We don't even use the language of truth in postmodernism. So the implications for that are, are vast. <clears throat> what happens when you start to adopt this kind of thinking is that no longer can we have any kind of meaningful conversations, right? There's no way to disagree in any kind of meaningful way. There's no way to have debate to where we can come to conclusions. What is there to debate? Right? If, if you have your own ideas of, of what you want to embrace and believe, and I have mine, and there is, no, there is no truth that we're aiming toward, then what are we even going to discuss? What are we even going to debate? And so all of that kind of thinking, this linear thinking needs to be squashed so that we don't have this idea that we move through a process of, um, of looking at facts and coming to a conclusion that we now call truth. We need to eliminate that. Instead now, we need to think about what do you believe or even more pernicious and very much a part of our culture, what do you feel? And so we've moved away from meaning to feeling. And the impact becomes ultimate. And when, uh, when we apply all the principles we've been talking about even more, uh, the, <clears throat> the idea of the oppressed being the ones who now get to dictate what is going to happen in the conversation um, is based on uh, their feelings. So if you're oppressed and you have certain feelings about certain things, that is going to be the dominant uh, idea that is going to be looked to to determine how we are going to come now to our conclusions. And so, in 21st century Western culture, the statements or actions of dominant or oppressive or privileged or whatever, these kinds of ideas are what are going to drive the narrative, not anything about what is true, what is false, what is factual, what is not. And so you can imagine right away how all of that starts to play out, right? It, it is something, and a lot of you have maybe heard me talk about this before. It is, it's more to me than a pet peeve, though. I think it gets to the heart of this. It's very common that today in our language you hear people talk about anything, and the way it is said is, I feel like. And that's it's across the board. It's said all the time. Well, a feeling is something that is of a generally physical nature, right? I feel like is you punch me in the face and I feel like it hurts, right? That's different uh, than I feel like, uh, you know, I feel like I have, uh, I have $100 in the bank or whatever. Well, you feel like or do you think, Right? That is that kind of language breakdown that goes to the heart of this sort of thing. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, picking on anyone in particular. This goes 
across the board at all levels of education and academia and everything else. I hear it from my peers um, getting their PhDs right now, and uh, it drives me nuts. Uh, but uh, we'll have discussions about a text, and they'll say, I feel like this says, like, well, if, what do you, it either it says it or it doesn't. Well, I don't care what you feel like. Um, <clears throat> but that's the kind of language that we're talking about. If everything is, I feel like, but I don't think or I don't believe, then we are <clears throat> sort of being brought into this way of working through an idea. We're breaking down this linear nature that ends up with truth. And so what ends up happening? Well, <clears throat> claims of truth start to lose uh, their pungency, right? Claims of truth start to lose um, how, uh, how clear we can be with them. And so the waters get a little bit muddy. And then you can start to hear people talk about their truth, my truth, I feel like my truth is whatever. How often do we hear that kind of language? It's every day a part of our very own culture. Um, so, again, as we've worked through all these things, that's not by mistake. For us, in general, it's probably just what we hear. We pick up speech patterns and we use words in those ways just because that's where we live. We talked about that last week, right? In terms of where we are in our culture, we start to sound and talk like people that are around us. But, uh, but none of that is by mistake. Changing ideas from fact or thinking or believing to feeling is a very intentional move. And as a result, uh, everyone is more concerned about how things make us feel as opposed to whether or not they are true. And so feelings dominate conversations. Feelings dominate our ideas and whether or not we're going to say something that maybe really needs to be said. Uh, these kinds of debates come up in the church all the time. Now, I would venture to guess if you've ever read anything written, say, in uh, the 16th, 17th centuries, uh, you may be a little bit shocked by some of the language. But one thing that you need to notice is that the language that is used in those types of writings uh, is written in such a way that they're dealing not with people, not with individuals, but with ideas. And they're attacking ideas in a way that is very forceful. And so in our 21st century minds, we sometimes read those things and we are aghast. How could you say that? That is so forceful. That is, so, uh, that is su such, a, such a forward attack. Uh, if you ever read anything, and, and some, of it, some of it is, I will, I will grant you that. Some of it is, is pretty, uh, uh, pretty stinging uh, unnecessarily. But we are so prone to jump to offense that we don't stop to think. Um, this is the best way to work through ideas. Again, it's not that they didn't care about the person. It didn't mean that they didn't care how they felt at all. But at the end of the day, they're arguing ideas. And can we argue ideas without getting offended as a person? 
Well, we struggle with that, right? Because we've so tied our feelings to our ideas that we assume if someone goes after my ideas, they're attacking me as a person. That is not helpful if we are going to have meaningful dialogue as Christians amongst ourselves and in the world. If we're ready to take offense at everything uh, because it makes me feel icky, (laughs) uh, we're not going to make any progress. So what does that do? That plays into a lot of other issues. And one of the major issues that plays into is our freedom to speak openly. Now that is a right enshrined in, uh, in Western culture is that we have a freedom to speak. And a freedom to speak is a freedom to be offensive if that's the speech we choose to utilize. That is something that we very much take for granted because all of us have, uh, we've lived in that our, uh, our entire lives. We've all been in cultures uh, where freedom of speech was something that was a part of what we were always able to do. <clears throat> Nevertheless, think about when the conversation moves from the idea of facts and beliefs and turns to feelings, what begins to happen to our freedom to speak openly? to speak in a way that some might find offensive. It's reduced uh, very quickly, very rapidly. It starts to be reduced, right? Um, and so I want to get into this, uh, this idea of, of the freedom of our speech, but more specifically, how that relates to the church. What is so important about freedom of speech, and why should the church be, uh, well, in my opinion, I'm sort of, putting this out there is this is how it ought to be. I believe it's a fact. I don't feel it. Uh, That the church ought to be on the front lines defending our right to freedom of speech. Um, I'll leave it there and then I'll I'll fill in what I think are the gaps, but I want to hear from you. So why should, why do you think, or maybe you don't think, that the church should be um, very vocal about the freedom of speech? Yeah. Okay, good. So for the sake of evangelism, I think is what you're getting at, that we, we have the truth of God's word and we want the opportunity to proclaim that truth in a way that others will hear and we pray, believe what we're, we're saying, right? Yeah, Lee. Right, that's good. So one of the, one of the considerations that we have to take is... Uh, this is about freedom of speech for, uh, for everyone, no matter what their ideas are, right? Because our tendency is when we hear something and we think it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe even blasphemous, uh, that we want that to be restricted. I don't want to hear blasphemous things about the Lord. And yet, if I start down that road of restricting those things, that very same thing is turned and used against me. Right? Those, those ideas are, are now, um, the, those laws or rules or regulations are now going to be used against me when uh, the, the wrong people uh, get a hold of the ability to do so. Yeah. Good, and that's right where we're going. We're going to talk more about this, but uh, Caleb brings up this idea of when you start restricting speech, now you start to define kinds of speech. And so hate speech becomes a thing. And when hate speech becomes a thing, um, who gets to determine what speech is hate speech? 
The oppressed get to do so, according to this framework, and when that is the case, who is the first, uh, who is the first to go down because what we have to say is hate speech? It's most certainly going to be the church, right? Now, I'll take this a step further, and this is something, remember we said from the beginning that um, Western civilization was founded on principles uh, from Scripture, and one of those is, uh, is of a natural variety. It's a natural law uh, that is uh, of liberty, that we are naturally born. God created us to live freely. And, uh, and so uh, this goes at the very heart of, of something that is uh, natural and innate to mankind because the Lord has created us in such a way. Remember, when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them a tremendous amount of freedom, right? He had, they had the moral law. It was written on their hearts. But all of that was wrapped up in this one tree, right? You're free. He tells you, you're free to do whatever. Cultivate the field, eat of the fruit, you know, do all of these things. You're free to do that. But this one thing. So you have, you have the law in this tree, but the rest of not only the garden, but the earth that they were supposed to expand the garden out to is, is theirs freely. And so this idea of, of liberty is something that was given to them from the very beginning. So it's, it's a part of our humanity. It is something that God has revealed to us uh, from the beginning, that uh, we are made to live free. And so when we, uh, when we are brought into this world, we have that very sense. It's something uh, that God's emblazoned on our hearts. And so when that is restricted, uh, when that begins to be taken away, it's, it's moving against human nature in itself, because this is what uh, is called a natural law. It's naturally given to us by God. And so this idea of freedom of speech is threatened by uh, postmodern uh, thinking, uh, this ideal was based on natural law, is based on enlightenment ideas, but it's the freedom not just to say things, but to, uh, to think, to criticize, to debate, uh, to, to preach, uh, and to be offensive. Now, are there any restrictions? Are, should there be any restrictions at all? Well, uh, there are restrictions, and they've, they've always been um, accepted as necessary, that you can't, uh, you can't incite people to, uh, to acts of violence or, um, or falsely claim things that cause harm to others. It's the no harm principle that I'm not going to, uh, the common way of talking about it. I, if someone came in here and shouted fire and we all run out and someone gets trampled and there is no fire, then that person would be held liable for the other person's death uh, because they were um, they were falsely claiming something. There's, there's, all, there's sorts of things like that. However, in general, the idea is that nothing uh, that is said can be um, punished uh, by any kind of law or uh, any kind of penalty of, of being fined or put in jail or whatever else. And that is a good thing for the church. That is something the church should support. And we, I believe, because we have it, have every obligation to defend as we are able so that we take up, uh, advantage of every opportunity to 
do as David was saying earlier, to proclaim the gospel. And so if we sort of back away and just say, well, we'll let it play out how it's going to play out, uh, then uh, we're not taking advantage of what the Lord has given us to preserve in order to be as effective as possible as His church to advance His kingdom. But what happens with, uh, with postmodernism, as uh, Caleb was, uh, was saying earlier, is that there is this idea that there needs to be penalties for certain kinds of speech. And this is actually happening in the West, um, not so much yet in America, but certainly in Canada and in the United Kingdom. In fact, in the United Kingdom right now, they have a system whereby if your neighbor or if your uh, friend or anyone you have any kind of association with says something uh, that you find to be offensive, uh, you're able to report them, and there is a tribunal that will um, investigate that and uh, in the end may determine that it was, in fact, offensive hate speech, and so there will be penalties involved. Now, uh, Depending what that is, you may hear it and say, well, that was, that was out of line. They shouldn't have said that. Well, someone who shouldn't have said something is very different than saying that is something that needs to be penalized. Right? So where does this go to? Well, immediately when the church starts saying anything about the uh, postmodernist religion of sexual ethics, uh, then all of a sudden this is hate speech. To say that a man is born as a man and cannot make himself a woman just because he thinks he is, that is deemed as hate speech. And so what happens to the church? Right? Well, uh, the first to go are those who say such things, especially in public, especially from a pulpit, um, and then from there, anyone else who wants to continue to articulate those ideas. And so, things that have, up until about ten minutes ago, been determined throughout all of human history to be biological realities are now determined to be hate speech. And if we don't do anything to preserve the uh, freedom to say those things, then this becomes something whereby the very preaching of the gospel is restricted. Now, of course, the church is going to continue what the church has always done and has been required to do by God. Uh, that's not going to slow down the advance of the gospel in, uh, in, in terms of the church taking the gospel where we're commanded to take it, and yet uh, we have an opportunity. Are we going to take advantage of it? And so, in light of all of this, this when this speech has become hate speech, Every human experience is now looked at through how, it, how does it make me feel when you say these things. And this isn't only not good for the church because our speech can be restricted, but it's not good for the church because this is how, uh, when this is the water we swim in as a culture, it can be something that we're uh, swimming against in our own thinking, in our own ways of trying to work through ideas. If every idea I have, I'm now starting to view through the lens of, well, when that is said to me, I feel a certain way, and when I feel that way, I think that they don't like me as a person, and so now there's some enmity between me and that person because they don't like my ideas. It makes me feel bad. Right. That's 
uh, in general, a stereotype of a current generation of Americans that uh, think that way entirely, right? Well, yes. (laughs) Thank you for the correction. It feel that way (laughs) entirely. Um, But when when that becomes the dominant meta-narrative, if you will, of the culture that we are starting to think about everything, feel everything in terms of our feelings and, uh, and whether or not what you say is, uh, is going to hurt me, uh, we have a problem. Because the Bible says a whole lot of things that a whole lot of people are going to find rather offensive to their own sensibilities, to their own flesh. Right? I, I guarantee you I have some things to look at in our sermon today that some people are going to maybe think are a little bit uncomfortable to the way that they function in life. Okay? I'm not, a go- I'm not attacking you as a person. We're dealing with ideas. We're dealing with our hearts. We're dealing with our actions. And the desire for the Christian is that we are made aware of those things so that we can become uh, more godly. We can become more biblical in our ways of thinking and working things out. And so these, these ways of working through our problems are, are very important because uh, what free speech becomes to the most postmodernists is, is, a, uh, is a weapon that is used by those who are oppressors against the oppressed. And ultimately what that becomes is, uh, uh, well, let me give you this quote. This is a guy named Fish. He says, individualism, fairness, merit, these three words are continually in the mouths of our up-to-date, newly respectable bigots who have learned that they need not put on a white hood or bar across the ballot box in order to secure their ends. Rather, they need only to clothe themselves in a vocabulary emptied of its historical content and made into the justification for attitudes and policies they would not acknowledge were they frankly named. So here's what he's saying. Free speech is the weapon of white supremacy. If we allow everyone to say what they want to say without restriction, then all we're doing is creating an environment where uh, people are going to say hateful things and we're going to deteriorate again into an environment where uh, we have oppression. And so it's better to restrict what we can say as opposed to Um, having to struggle through the difficulties of communicating with people, right? So let's just, everything we decide is offensive, let's stop that so we don't hurt anyone's feelings. And ultimately, uh, something we should all be concerned about, that we don't go to a place and a time when uh, when there was true oppression that could be pointed to, when there were situations, when there were circumstances that we can look at and say were evil and wrong. But is the way to deal with that by telling us we shouldn't be able to say, we shouldn't be able to. Um, what, what, is, what is the thing that the Lord calls us to? When we, we think about all these things, someone is going to, uh, you will be offended. I'm sorry to bring that up, but in this life, people are going to offend you. So how does the Lord call us to deal with that? To tell them you can't say that to me? You hurt my feelings? Do we need safe spaces? Is that what the church should be calling for? What, what, is the, what is what the Lord calls us to when we take offense? What's that? 
Yeah, that's one thing, to turn the other cheek. And what is the whole idea behind that? What's the idea behind turning the other cheek? Uh, that's one interpretation of that. Yeah, that uh, you slap me once and I'll turn the other cheek and now I get the, I get the backhand. But, um, and that's the whole idea is like I'm, I'm, in essence, you've slapped me. I'm giving you the opportunity to, um, uh, to not do that again. But if you have to do it, it's going to be a backhand, which is the ultimate offense in that culture. Yeah. Right, that you're, uh, in essence, you're saying, well, okay, it hurt me physically, but this is not going to be something that's going to ultimately, this isn't going to take me down. So if you need to do that again, do that again, right? Yeah, right, that at the end of the day, you're going to, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to do it again, and if you do it again, I'll keep, you know, it's kind of this, this thing. Now, eventually, you might want to back up, but, uh, <laughs> right. Josh? Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. Sure. So in terms of our um, proclaiming what we know will give offense, are we going to back away from that if we know it's true from Scripture? But the other side, how do we, how do we receive things that we know to be an offense? Um, what, is, what is... Yeah, go ahead, Melissa. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's one of the things uh, that the Bible is very explicit about, right? That you don't return evil for evil, you return evil with good. And when you do that, you're trusting that the Lord will, uh, he will deal with all of it in the end, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so uh, the retaliation is not to, uh, to break down and to restrict and to, uh, to limit, but rather to trust that the Lord will do what is right. Yeah, well, so what is, sure, so the, the whole, what is the idea behind uh, something like, as Jesus presents, a physical attack against someone is, is ultimately this, I'm trying to break that person down, right? But when, when they continue to stand, what, oh, well, there's something else here. There's something else going on here. I, I'm not able to control in the end. I can't get the upper hand here, and so... Um, there must be something else that's, that's up. So definitely, there's definitely a piece to that. Yeah, and again, yeah, good, good example of, of Paul. When we, remember when we went through Galatians, he didn't, he didn't hold back at all when he was talking about what the things that the Judaizers were saying and doing, right? He was very forceful in all of that. Uh, but I... I want you to think about Galatians in, and how he does that and uh, what, he's, what he's attacking. By and large, he's going after uh, the things that they're teaching, right? He's going after their heresy, and he does actually call them, uh, he calls them a few names, uh, and Jesus does that too with the Pharisees. Uh, but why? What are, what are, what are they doing in, in that? Are they intentionally seeking to offend for the sake of offending? No, they're doing that to make a very clear point that the truth of God and who God is and what God requires of a people is far more important than whether or not uh, these people are going to be offended by what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. Now, tied to that as well, is, as Russ is saying, is that while the things that we say are going to at times give offense to people, we're not called to go out and intentionally be offensive. 
right? We're not called to be jerks for the sake of being jerks. Like sometimes people don't like Christians not because of what they're saying, but because of who they are <laughs> and the way that they come across, right? Enough offense is brought up in the heart because we're challenging the flesh that we don't need to be people who are intentionally out there um, trying to be offensive. Yeah, Ethan. Oh, definitely. That is the authority is how I feel. Postmodern uh, thinking and, and certainly has embedded itself deeply into our culture is how I feel is the authority on everything. Right. I want to be the God in this situation. And so if it makes me feel good, I'll accept it. But if it makes me feel bad, you need to be silenced. You need to be squashed. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, Jermaine. That's, that's the very idea that Jesus is talking about, is that we don't, return, we don't return evil for evil, but we return evil with good. And that we seek to win someone over in doing that. And Jesus says in doing so, we're heaping coals on their heads. Uh, we're bringing judgment against them in doing so. It's a very paradoxical idea. Right. I feel like a giraffe is shorter than an ant. And so um, that's my truth. And you can't argue with that, right? That ends all conversation, doesn't it? All right. We're out of time. So let's pray, and we will uh, we'll pick up there next week. Lord, thanks again for our time together. We're grateful for a, uh, I, I hope, I believe, to be a, uh, a helpful conversation for all of us. I pray, Lord, you help us to keep our eyes open, um, not only to what's going on around us, but what's going on in our own hearts, our own ways of thinking. And I pray, Lord, that in doing so, uh, that you give us a greater sense of your truth, greater understanding of what your word commands from us, that we might walk more faithfully, more joyfully in our pursuit of godliness, in our pursuit of holiness. We pray you would do all of this, that in your church, amongst your people, that you would be glorified, that we would be strengthened, that the gospel would be brought to the ends of the earth. And so we pray you would do that. And we ask now, Lord, that as we gather for our time of corporate worship, that you would meet with us, uh, that we have a sweet communion with you, and uh, that your people are edified, uh, that, we are, um, that we will have an encounter with Christ, with the living God, uh, that in doing so, that we will be confronted where there is sin, uh, but that we also, uh, and most importantly, will be reminded of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel to bring renewal, refreshment, and joy to our souls as your people. And we ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.